Welcome to the audio sermons of South Baton Rouge Presbyterian Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We hope you are encouraged by listening. For more information, please feel free to browse our site at www.sbrpc.org. We got a passage from Isaiah 52 and 53 together. It's um, it's one of what are called the suffering servant songs in Isaiah, uh, in his prophecy. And there's songs about this future mysterious servant who's going to one day come into the world and he is going to be marked by incredible suffering. Um, and so there's songs about the ultimate suffering servant, Jesus. This particular song that we're going to look at in Isaiah 52 and 53, it's, it's a song that has five verses or five stanzas to this song, which is great because this song itself happens to be one of the clearest explanations in the entire Bible about why Jesus came into the world, why he took on flesh, why he suffered, why he was born into this world to die. Um, So we're going to start with the very first stanza of this song in Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15. Um, But if you want to turn there in your Bible, I'm going to read beyond that. I'm just going to read this whole song together so we can hear it in context at least once during these five weeks leading up to Christmas. So Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him now and ask for his help. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to be together. We thank you for the opportunity to read your word aloud, um, to hear the voice of our God, the voice of our Father speaking to us, His children, and we pray that You would send Your Spirit, that we might understand Your Word, that uh, we could see how these very verses are about Jesus. Would You allow us to see that by faith this morning, we pray, and build us up and encourage us in Him. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Um, most of us enjoy probably some kind of puzzle, right? There, there's number puzzles like Sudoku or something like that, or there's word puzzles like well, crossword puzzles or, um, or what's the other, wordscapes. Uh, of course, there's also the classic jigsaw puzzle where you have all these disjointed puzzle pieces and the goal is to find the way for them to fit together just perfectly so they show you this big picture or maybe it's a puzzle that comes in a, a totally different form, something like a mystery novel or a movie or something like that, where you have to collect all this information of what appears to be disjointed pieces of information, and you try to put them together in order to figure out who done it, right? Um, and, and puzzles are all about taking, all about figuring out how different pieces really fit together, taking pieces or words or clues that initially appear disjointed and figuring out the connections and how they fit together. It's taking what may seem irreconcilable, what may seem to be completely contradictory, and then figuring out how to put those pieces together in a way that makes sense. So Isaiah 52, verse 13, Isaiah wrote, Behold my servant. Right, behold is that, that word that means look, right? Fix your eyes upon my servant. Consider my servant. And Isaiah wants us to see, I think, and wonder at a very puzzling servant. If you read the verses, I think you'll, you'll get the idea why he is such a puzzle. Because on the one hand, we're told in these verses in Isaiah 52 that this servant acts wisely, that he is high and lifted up, that he will one day be rewarded, right? It's the picture of triumph, of success and reward. But on the other hand, these same verses tell us that this servant will suffer and he will be broken and he will be beaten and he will be marred beyond any human semblance. And that's a picture of crushing defeat and utter rejection. And that's the puzzle. How can this servant who lived wisely 
and perfectly and therefore should be loved and accepted by God, how is it that his life also appears to be proof of God's rejection? And, you know, I, I think this is one of life's great puzzles. Right? How can suffering and pain and sorrow and the hardness of life be compatible with and fit together with the love of God, right? Two contrasting pictures that seem irreconcilable. That's the puzzle. And so let's talk about our way through this puzzle in three points. The troubling question in our suffering, the limited perspective in our suffering, and then third and finally, how to bring a gospel perspective into our suffering. First, let's talk about the troubling question in life suffering. And I do want us to be honest about this troubling question. Why? Why would a loving, all-powerful God allow us to suffer? How do we reconcile the experience of suffering and evil with a God who is loving and all-powerful? You know, it could be that some of you are asking this question in a very, very personal way this morning. But even if you're not, I can guarantee you that many of your friends are asking this question. And it's a very hard question, and it's a very honest question. So I want us to talk about this troubling question both philosophically and personally. Right. Bart Ehrman, who's a professor of religious studies at UNC Chapel Hill and a leading critic of Christianity, um, he puts the philosophically troubling question like this. This is what he writes. My view is that it is impossible to reconcile the pain and misery all about us. And he gives some examples. The millions of children in Africa dying of AIDS and malaria. The millions of others dying because they are forced to drink unclean water. The countless others dying from natural disasters, hurricanes, tsunamis, droughts, famine. He says, it is impossible to reconcile the pain and misery all about us if there is a good and all-powerful God in charge of the world. He's saying the puzzle is irreconcilable. And if we read to read further, you would hear his argument be just this. Either God is loving, but he's not powerful enough to stop the suffering, or God is powerful, but he's not loving because he allows us to suffer. It's a philosophically troubling question, right? Why would a God who is perfectly loving and all-powerful allow suffering? And that is a very honest and a very difficult question. And it's this troubling question that's at the heart of this puzzle in Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15. But let's also bring this troubling question into our more real personal experience and how we find it. You know, some of us are in the midst of life's troubles right now this very morning. We're suffering. We're feeling like our lives are being dashed upon the rocks, broken to pieces, and we're experiencing real hurt in this life. And if you're not this morning, just give it a minute because the brokenness of this world will press its jagged teeth into all of us at some point. And at the very least, you can look around you and you can see your friends who are suffering. How can you come alongside those who suffer with any hope? 
You know, pain and suffering and sorrow are unavoidable in this life. You aren't living in reality if you think you can avoid it and build a life where it doesn't impact you. Eventually, this troubling question deals with each and every one of us personally. And I want us to admit that when we're personally confronted with suffering, or when you have been in your past, our question in our personal suffering isn't all that far removed from what Barnerman is saying. You know, whether it's financial hardship that comes into our lives, or there's relational trauma and trial, or the experience of death and loss, or illness, or loving someone who is caught in addiction, or facing some crushing disappointment in life, or, or, or a host of other sorrows. When suffering enters our lives, what's the first question on our lips? It's why. Why is this happening? Why would God allow this to happen to me? Why would God allow this to happen to my family? And you know what? The Bible says you are completely not alone in asking that question. God's people have always struggled with this question in this puzzle. Just listen to some prayers that are recorded in the Psalms. Psalm 10.1, why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 42, verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Psalm 43, 2, you are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Psalm 44, 23 through 24, awake, O Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? It's personally troubling. Because when we face suffering in our lives, we feel abandoned. We feel like God has turned His back on us in our very moment of need. Like God has walked away from His promise to love us and provide for us and care for us. You know, every once in a while, more than every once in a while, I often get on YouTube and, um, and I watch these, one of my favorite things to watch are these compilations of people getting scared. And I don't know what that says about me. Maybe it's troubling. I'm not sure. But sometimes it's, you know, in those compilations, you got somebody who's being awakened from this deep slumber and somebody's standing over them with like a Halloween mask or something like that. Or somebody comes around the corner and is caught off guard and, and scared or something like that. Or maybe it's a really elaborate prank. You've seen the one like when people get into the elevator and then it, it appears the floor is disappearing from beneath them and they freak out. Um, and it cracks me up um, every time. Uh, the terrified facial expressions, the people who jump, the people who run, the, the people who fight back in anger, right, or they're paralyzed in the moment. Because whatever the reaction is, it's that person's most fundamental instinct that takes over in that moment of being caught off guard and surprised and scared. Pure fight and flight or freeze type stuff, right? Instinctively, one person swings to punch somebody or another guy screams like a little girl or something like that, and it's hilarious. Now, come back to the troubling question in our suffering. I think the reason that the Bible gives us all these examples of people asking the why question in the midst of their suffering is because the Bible is saying this is the most fundamental instinctive question that we ask when suffering crashes into our lives. 
We feel ourselves caught in the puzzle and we cry, why? Why would a good, loving, and all-powerful God allow me or allow my family or the people that I love to hurt like this? Why does it feel like God is so far? Why does it feel like he's asleep when I need him? Why does it feel like he's forgotten me? Why does it feel like I'm being rejected right now? Now, we're going to leave this point and let that question linger for a moment longer. But I also want you to realize this question comes up instinctively for all of us. Because there's something that is deep inside our humanity, in our nature, that tells us this isn't right. Life is not meant to be like this. Pain and suffering and evil, they are unwelcome intruders into this world. And we were not built for suffering. We weren't built for pain and injustice and evil. This is not the way the world was meant to be. And suffering brings that troubling question of why into sharp focus. All right, let's move on. Second, let's consider the limited perspective in our suffering. So it's hard for us to acknowledge in the midst of our suffering, but because we are human and we are finite, we bring a limited perspective into our suffering. And the Bible is filled with examples of this. And they're meant to be, they're there for your comfort. When our perspective is so clouded and limited in suffering, these stories are meant to comfort us. Here's two examples of stories that I'm talking about. In Mark chapter 5, there's this story of a synagogue ruler named Jairus who came to Jesus and begged him to come and help his 12-year-old little girl who was dying. And so Jesus went with Jairus. But on the way, Jesus stopped. And in the traveling crowd that was surrounding him, a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years touched him and was healed. And so Jesus stopped. He stopped going to Jairus' house, and he looked for this woman. I mean, if you read the story in the Gospels, it, the disciples are frustrated with Jesus. And all this crowd, how could you stop and look for one person like this? But he did, and eventually he found her, and he had a conversation with her. And in the midst of that conversation, servants from Jairus' house came to him, came to Jairus and said to him, your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Can you imagine what Jairus must have felt with his limited perspective? Something like, Jesus could have saved her, but he stopped to look for this woman and had a conversation with her. And now my daughter is dead because he didn't make it in time. Or maybe Jairus was thinking, this is blatant malpractice. Stopping to heal a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, she'd be okay another few hours. Instead of dealing with the acute crisis that his daughter was facing. You know, the Gospels tell us that Jesus knew what Jairus was feeling and thinking. Because when, when Jairus heard this news, Jesus immediately turned to him and said, Do not fear. Only believe. See, Jairus didn't know what Jesus knew. Right? He was afraid because his perspective was limited in the midst of his suffering. Jairus had come to Jesus for healing, but Jesus knew that he was going to give Jairus a resurrection from the dead, 
which was better by far. And that's exactly how the story played out. Jesus went to Jairus' daughter and raised her from the dead. You know, it's so humbling to realize in suffering when I become so anxious, so fearful, so angry in the midst of it, that the real reason for all that is because I, I feel like I know exactly how my life should go. And I am certain that Jesus has gotten it wrong. And surely Jairus felt that. You screwed up, Jesus. You stopped. And now my daughter's dead. And I think one reason God gave us this story is to say, our perspective is so limited. Why would you ever want to hurry someone this powerful and this loving, someone who longs to give you not just a healing, but a resurrection from the dead? You know, the second story um, that a lot of us know that highlights the limited perspective in our suffering is the story of Joseph in Genesis, right? Joseph was handed over by his brothers who wanted to kill him, and then at the last moment they saw that they might profit from his life, and so they sold him as a slave. And so J Joseph wound up a slave in Egypt. And remember when he got there, all, things weren't just great now that he got to Egypt. He was thrown in prison for a crime he didn't commit for like 20 years of his life. 20 years, where was God in that? But then Joseph was noticed by Pharaoh and he's placed in this position of power in Egypt. And, and because of this, right, he was able to prepare for a famine. And because of his preparations, he was able to deliver and rescue his family who had betrayed him all those years prior. And from that family came the nation of Israel. And from the nation of Israel came Jesus, who came not just to deliver Israel, but to deliver the whole world. You know, only decades after being sold as a slave and a victim of injustice, did Joseph find the perspective to say to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. But let me add this little bit to the story of Joseph. It is hard to read the story of Joseph honestly in Genesis and not feel at least a little bit of sympathy for Joseph's brothers. Because Joseph was an arrogant, spoiled, tattletailing little brat who was constantly bragging to his brothers about how one day they would have to bow before him. And here's what the story of Joseph is, is telling us in Genesis. Not only was God saving a nation through Joseph's suffering, but God was saving Joseph through his suffering, changing him and transforming him from this proud, self-absorbed young man into a humble, wise, and compassionate man who could say to his brothers, you meant evil to me, but God meant it for my good. Our perspective is extremely limited in life's suffering. You don't know how God is using the trouble and suffering and hardness and sorrow in your life, in the lives of others, or in his unfolding plan of redemptive history, even if you see a piece of his purpose, you can't see the whole. Listen, if we're really finite creatures, limited knowledge and wisdom, doesn't it make perfect sense that our perspective would necessarily be limited in our suffering? I mean, if that's who we are, it should make sense that there wouldn't be an answer for every question that we have in life. One night, this is years and years ago, when one of my daughters, she was two years old, 
And at the time, we are living in Starkville, Mississippi, I remember, and we walked out in the backyard because there was a supermoon that night. You know, big, huge moon that you could see, and it was bright, and it was beautiful, and all of that kind of stuff. And so I'm holding her there, and I'm saying, look at the moon. And in, from my arms, she starts reaching for the moon. And she keeps, she cries, Daddy, I want to touch it, I want to touch it, let me touch it. You know, when that happened, I, I didn't panic. Um, I wasn't really worried about it. Um, you know, does she have a problem with depth perception or something like that, or mental development. Um, I, I knew she didn't know what I knew, that as big as the moon appeared in front of us, it was 238,000 miles away from us, and I couldn't let her touch it. I just figured she's two, and as a two-year-old, your perspective is limited. And the gap between her comprehension and mine as an adult has to be a million times smaller than the gap between my comprehension of the world as a finite creature and the understanding of an infinite God. In suffering, God is, what God is often doing with us is He is pounding the self-righteousness out of our hearts that assumes we always know how things should go, that we always know what's right. He won't be hurried in the gifts He longs to give to His children and even bring through suffering in, the lives, in our lives, in the lives of others, or in His unfolding plan of redemption. And I'm not suggesting it's easy to wait. It wasn't easy for Joseph to wait. It wasn't easy for Jairus to wait. But we have to remind ourselves of our very limited perspective in our suffering. All right, third and finally, and now we're going to talk more directly about Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15. I want to talk about how to bring the perspective of the cross into life suffering. We have real, hard, and honest questions about why God would allow the people he loves to suffer. And there are some good points the Bible makes addressing that question, but the main way God answers that question is not with bullet points and proposition statements, but with something or rather someone to look upon, right? Verse 13, God says, behold my servant, look at him, consider him, fix your eyes upon Jesus, the suffering servant. He is high and exalted, broken and defeated. He is successful and triumphant and crushed and rejected. He came and lived a life of supreme, ultimate beauty, fulfilled every righteous requirement of the law. He was the only one to ever love God perfectly with every fiber of his being and to love his neighbor as himself perfectly and without flaw. His life was a life of perfect beauty and wisdom, and he alone deserved to be high and lifted up and exalted. Do you remember the scene when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River? Beginning of the gospel accounts, right? We're told in the gospels that the heavens were torn open and a voice was heard and it was the voice of Jesus' father saying, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. You know what that's a scene of? That's a scene of a father doting over his child beaming with love and complete satisfaction in his child, affirming and confirming his absolute pleasure in his son. 
Jesus was the delight. He was the apple of his father's eye. And that's, that's a high point in his life, to be sure. That's why they all recorded it. Here was Jesus experiencing total assurance of his father's love for him. What's the very next thing that happened to Jesus? The very next thing that every gospel writer records, and the contrast must have felt so sharp, from total assurance of his father's love to his father, sending him directly into the wilderness to suffer for 40 days, hunger and fasting, 40 days of being assaulted and tempted by Satan. Hard suffering and the love of God have always gone together. What often seems irreconcilable to us, God fits together like a perfectly matched puzzle piece. Isaiah wrote people would be astonished when they looked at Jesus in verse 14. And that phrase in verse 14 where it says this, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. That's beautiful language. This is what Isaiah was saying. Jesus would experience such intense suffering and torture and disfigurement that if you saw him, you wouldn't just ask, is this the servant who acted wisely? Isaiah is saying you would look at him and you would ask, is that thing even human? marred beyond human semblance. Right? It's always been this way. God brings salvation through judgment, deliverance through suffering. You know, earlier when I was quoting uh, different psalms that asked the question, why? I I didn't mention a very important psalm uh, that, that asked that question, why? That question, uh, why, shows up in Psalm 22, verse 1. Do you remember it? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the psalm Jesus quoted hanging from the cross. Right, just prior to being hung on the cross, you know what, what the Gospels tell us? They tell us that Pilate led Jesus before the crowd, and he's wearing this purple robe and a crown of thorns, And do you remember what Pilate said to the crowd? He said, behold the man. Behold the servant. Look at and consider this puzzling servant. Loved by God, forsaken by God. He was born to die. To sprinkle many nations with his blood, as we are told in these verses. To save the world through his death. Let me end with a quote from John Stott. And I'll just give you two final reasons why we celebrate Christmas. Um, No one escapes this broken world without having to face troubling questions in our suffering. Our, Our perspective will always be limited, but we find comfort when we behold and look upon Jesus, the suffering servant. God's wise love in all its mystery is perfectly compatible with and reconcilable with suffering. When you suffer, consider Jesus. Behold the servant. John Stott wrote, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. 
In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? That lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. Stott writes, that's the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. You know what Christmas is? Why Christmas is merry and happy? It is a celebration that the puzzling servant Isaiah prophesied has come. That God himself laid aside his immunity to pain and came and suffered and died in our place. On the cross, he was forsaken. And because of that, though we continue to wrestle with questions in our suffering, we can at least know it cannot be because we are being forsaken. At times in our lives, we may feel forsaken, but if you believe the good news of Jesus, you know that you cannot be forsaken because Jesus was forsaken for us in our place. So that with the perspective of the gospel and our suffering, we can be assured in the midst of it. We can be affirmed and confirmed that God delights in us even as he delights in his own son. His wise love has always been compatible with the experience of suffering. So we've got to bring the perspective of the gospel into our suffering and behold the one who suffered for us. But here's another reason Christmas is merry. You know, for centuries the church has used Christmas time not only to celebrate Jesus' first coming into the world, but also his, to celebrate and anticipate that he is going to come again. You know, oftentimes, I, I fear we ask the Bible questions it wasn't written to answer. We have questions, why would a loving and all-powerful God allow such evil and suffering in this world? But the Bible wasn't primarily meant to answer that question. The Bible was primarily answering another question altogether. What is a loving and all-powerful God doing about all the evil and suffering in the world? And you see that answer only when you behold the servant. Only when you behold Jesus and consider him. What is a loving and all-powerful God doing about the evil and brokenness and hardness and suffering of the world? Answer, he sent his son into the world to conquer evil through his suffering and death. And one day, someday, he is going to come again and give us the world as it was meant to be. No more suffering, mourning, pain, tears, or death. And here's what happens when you can embrace these two reasons that Christmas is merry, that Jesus has come and has come again. You become free. You're free, free to know and rest in Jesus, knowing that your Father delights in you and approves of you. And you're also free to be like your Savior. In this sense, that you're free to become a puzzle to the world and suffer patiently under the hand of a loving God to suffer for others just as he suffered for us. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we, your people, can be together today to worship you, to, to direct our thoughts upon Jesus whom you sent into this world to suffer and die for us. And to wait patiently for that day when he will come again and make all that is wrong in this world right again. Father, we pray that you would change us by the good news of Jesus. That we would bring the perspective of the cross into our own suffering. That we would know how to look upon him. 
to see Him who suffered for us, to give us life through His suffering. Father, we pray that You would do this for our good and for the glory of Jesus. For it's in His name that we pray. Thank you for listening to this audio sermon of South Baton Rouge Presbyterian Church. Please feel free to pass it along to others who might be encouraged by this message. Also, if you have any questions or would like to know more about the church or a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, please feel free to browse our website at www.sbrpc.org or contact the church office directly at area code 225-768-9999. Again, thank you for listening.